You're listening to Of Mountains and Minds, and I am Caroline Mackay. This is the podcast that talks to people who've been through major challenges, transitions, or adventures in life. Welcome back to this episode, everyone. I'm really sad to say this is the final episode in Series 7. It's been a really interesting series, carrying the dubious distinction of being the only one recorded fully in lockdown. But I am so grateful to all of my guests. And yeah, it's absolutely flown by. I can't believe this is the final episode. So thank you all for listening, wherever you are in the world, whatever you're doing. Thank you for being here. I'm going to be taking a little break now, as I've recorded the last two series in fairly quick succession, and I just feel I need a bit of a pause. Thank you so much to all the patrons who have supported the show through this series. Very, very grateful to you all for making this happen. And I'm now going to pause all of your payments until I start recording again and until I start the next series. I'm also thinking of recording a few bonus episodes before the next series, so watch this space. There will be something going out in between. But let's get to this episode, folks. I have a brilliant and straight-talking guest for you today. Jo Love is an award-winning mental health advocate, a speaker and a writer who uses her platform to break the silence on mental health issues. She was formerly a city lawyer in London with a first-hand understanding of how working in a high-pressure environment can affect mental health. So after spending a large part of her life silently suffering with depression, OCD and anxiety, and later postnatal depression and PTSD after the birth of her first daughter, Jo realised she really needed to make a change and start to break the silence in order to recover herself, but also to help others do the same and to encourage others to speak up about the more stigmatised mental health conditions. I would say definitely OCD is one of these. So do keep an eye on the website of mountainsandminds.com for updates between series and you can also follow me on social media because occasionally I do update about the podcast on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram I am at Caro Mackay, C-A-R-O Mackay, M-C-K-A-Y and on Twitter I am at Caroline R Mackay so you can find me there. So let's get to it. Come and meet Joe Love with me. Okay, welcome to Of Mountains and Minds, Jo. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. It's my, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's so exciting to speak to you. It's actually, this season of the podcast is a bit of a Speakers Collective season, so it's exciting to speak to. I think you're in my fourth from the Speakers Collective. Oh, hooray! That's really good to hear. Have you been speaking with them for a while? Do you know everyone else in the collective? Yeah, so I was a director for uh, for for a while. Um, I stepped down as a director just work commitments and 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 um, I had a, quite a lot on my plate that I was juggling. Um, so yeah, I was in there from the beginning, from the very first, the inception, the very first meeting that we had, and um, it was just an idea. And then yeah, t- has t- have taken it through to where it is now, which is really lovely. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's such a diverse group of people as well, and it's just such mm-hmm. a such a worthwhile concept. So we're in June as we're recording, the beginning of June at the moment, and COVID restrictions across the UK are relaxing, although much more so in England. I know that you're in Bath, so I just wanted to kick off by asking how the whole pandemic or lockdown experience has been for you, I suppose, over the last couple of months. <sighs> Gosh, great question. And it is easing here, uh, but it's still, but not by much. Gosh, it's tiny little freedoms that you do take for granted that are coming back and are so wonderful. And it's almost, I don't know how much work you've done on mindfulness, but it feels like a really rich mindful experience where every little thing that's coming back to you is you're really grateful for and you really drink in so I had a coffee a socially distanced coffee with a friend um in a square here in Bath and she sort of sat with a very long bench she sort of sat on one end of it and I sat perched on the other and it was a coffee that I hadn't made myself that somebody far more qualified than me had made mm-hmm. and I was sat in the outside it was beautiful sunshine and I was seeing somebody who didn't live in my house and it was you knew it at the time that it was just such a luxury and it felt so wonderful but it hasn't been entirely that experience it has been 
I'm sure I'm not um, saying anything new here, but it's been really intense. It has been, the, you know, the great big spike of anxiety at the beginning. And then I actually did a little drawing on my social media, if anyone wants to have a look. I did this little COVID graph and it had like loops. So we get a great big spike at the bottom of anxiety to start with. Mm. And then it went into these sort of anxiety loops of, um, you know, you flip between uh kind of fear and then hope and you uh gratitude for what you have and your health but then you like flip back into stress and I think and the sort of groundhog day a bit and then and then it sort of levels out into a flat weary a weary a relentless weary and a glimmer of hope as it's Mm -hmm. coming out with mixed with I think a healthy fear of the unknown and the sort of uncocooning of ourselves that we have to do and I think there's a bit of there's a bit of anxiety again not to the same spike as at the beginning but how we're all going to cope how we're going to manage what what this new normal is going to look like um are we ready to be unlocked and unleashed to the to the wider world so it's it's been really intense it's been a challenge it's been a juggle i've had a little person who's not who should be at school and has not been at school and uh and that i i felt sorry I'm, i am wrapping up your question here really i felt, no, go for it i felt that it's been it's been quite triggering and quite hard to see a lot of people talking about how slow um their covid experience has been and lockdown has been and how kind of what to do with the extra time and you know we all saw it at the beginning and I think everybody got annoyed with it but that I'm going to learn French and I'm going to do this and uh, it was a bit extra it felt an extra intensity for me as somebody who has probably never been busier having to juggle my work suddenly loads more people in the house we had to have a relative move in who was in between house moves so was homeless so we had we had them here and we had their dogs here we had our dog here we had my child here I had homeschooling to do and far more work because everyone wanted to be talking about mental health so it was it was it it was it is it has been um uh, not a slow period of time <laughs> So I hope that sort of answers your question, really. Yeah, absolutely. They're really interesting insights. And I have to say, you mentioned your social media. I love the illustrations you do on Instagram. I will need to link to them. They're brilliant. Oh, thank you. It's been a completely, I mean, I've, it's kind of been a completely new revelation. A COVID creativity has just come across, uh, come come to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always been slightly creative, but I certainly haven't been as creative as I have been in lockdown, um, particularly not on my social media feed to the point where a girl I went to school with said to me and she knew that I did our A level she's known me my whole life and she's like I'd totally forgotten that you're creative isn't that funny I was like I think I had as well and weirdly lockdown I think it's because I do it on my iPad and I think I can't be scrolling social media although I'm on an iPad I am on a, I am on a screen but you know I, I I have to switch off I can't really watch TV I can't really do anything can't I'm just engaged in the act of drawing and I've been drawing it'd be great if you could link to it because I've been drawing feelings and things that I have been that I have yeah basically emotions and feelings that I've had during this time uh in the hope that perhaps it resonates there's one other person that might feel the same and it's had Mm. an enormous response because I haven't been meaning to tap into anything um either in myself or the the collective but it seems like it has been and what I'm producing and the art that I'm producing can I call it art I don't know doodles that I've been producing have been have been um people have been resonating with it which is really nice yeah and I think yeah just when people do resonate with something they've seen they it can really help them to feel less alone and that is part of the massive benefit of social media in some ways there's some negatives to the the wider issue of social media in terms of overuse <laughs> or addiction yeah. um, but that is one of the amazing benefits when people see something you think oh it's not just me and they identify with it and they feel they don't feel as alone for that you know minute or hour or day absolutely it's interesting you mentioned that people at the beginning were kind of advising everyone should make use of this extra time because everyone's going to have extra time and learn a language or or learn a new skill and I saw quite a lot of that on Twitter actually and it was so frustrating because yeah for the first part like not everyone has extra time but also if you are one of the lucky ones with extra time there's nothing wrong with stillness and I think 
you know, that, that message going out there saying we need to be busy all the time, we need to fill our time with useful things. I just think that's really damaging for mental health in a way. I totally agree. Glorify the glorification of busy, we really need to stop it, don't we? And mm. and I think even though I practice mindfulness as much as I can, I'm probably a bit lapsed, but I probably do it more than most people. Um, I think this is a really great opportunity to to stop a bit and pause. And I am not I'm not there though. I'm in busy still. But I will not glorify it. I don't want to be. I want to I want to be slow. Yeah, totally. I know. And and we're we're never gonna be perfect, but it's just working towards that and trying to find yeah. the time when we can to be more mindful or have some stillness. But Yes, absolutely. So yeah, I wanted to talk about mental health, obviously, because you are such an advocate and you do a lot of speaking about your own mental health struggles in the past. You're just a, a shining example of of speaking up. And I, I wanted to ask you about the time in your life when you first felt like you were struggling. And I think, if I'm right in thinking it was depression and OCD, but which one came first and when did it take hold in your life? Uh, yeah, it's a really difficult question to answer because I think both have been, both OCD and um, depression have were undiagnosed for a very long time. I have had OCD now with retrospect I know I've had OCD my whole life and I think I have probably had bouts of depression since childhood as well it the depression first came to light when I went to in a in a in a conscious way um when I went to university and I think this can happen for a lot of people um you're suddenly on your own uh, you're having to deal with a lot of things that you haven't dealt with you're still very protected in a lot of ways but I think that's when my mood really took a swing downwards and I ended up in therapy at that point in time and then my OCD uh yeah it didn't get diagnosed so I have I sort of have a few I have a lot of tics basically and um some of them are still with me and some of them have been with me a long time and some of them I have control of and or I'm okay with at the moment so I have a form of OCD which is called dermatillomania which is um skin picking and compulsive skin picking so I mean everybody whenever I talk about this people say oh yeah I I pick my thumb skin um or or I pick my face when I have spots this is but that to an extreme like you cannot stop yourself mm-hmm. uh, I do it in times of stress but I also just do it in boredom I also just do it and and, and I can I and I know it's a compulsion. I know what I'm doing, but it's very, very it's so difficult to stop. So I will pick all the skin on my head, like under my hair. And I have done that since I'm trying to think about when I used to have all these scabs under my sort of, I put my hand up into my hair, if you imagine a ponytail, and mm. pick under there. Not because I had nits or anything like that, but it wasn't itchy. It was just a stress reliever. Um, I'm trying to think of what age I was, but I was, at school I was probably a teenager at that point when that started and yeah my legs my legs take a real battering the tops of my tops of my arms tops of my legs um and yeah my neck and my and my and my head um really get really take a battering so it wasn't until I was again um I got diagnosed with that when I had maternal uh mental health issues so when my little girl came along basically everything came juggling uh, everything I was juggling came crashing down all the places mm. all of the you know trying to make everything look like I had a perfect life or yeah just the only way to describe it is all the balls just fell and um so at that point I got diagnosed with postnatal depression also with maternal OCD and one of that was compulsive thoughts so I was having some really quite scary thoughts and mm. um and checking and rechecking things as well, which again was a thought, you know, a, a thought loop that I was in a lot of the time. But also the dermatillomania. But the dermatillomania had been there, I mean, for a really long time. Um, so that 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 probably answers your question. It was it it was there. It was all there. It just took times of stress for it to come bubbling up, um, and that's sort of what happens really in our mental health. Um, it's such a I hate the word journey but it's such a it's not linear is it and in 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 times when external there's external factors that aggravate our mental health 
things come to the fore a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, I know quite a lot about OCD. I had it as a teenager, actually, mm-hmm. and I've had a few bouts in my, well, in my 20s, not so much in my 30s. But there's so many different types of OCD and the intrusive thoughts. Uh, they're just, I mean, I'm I'm in awe of you speaking up about it because it's so hard to talk about publicly. And I just think it's amazing when people actually take that step and do it because it's so scary to think, you know, in your head when you're suffering with OCD, you think, what are people going to think of me? Because yeah. thoughts, you know, they, they equal myself. Mm. Um, and that's I, what we think, isn't it? I totally agree. And yeah, and I have, and it's so hard because at different times I've been diagnosed with different things. So at one point somebody did diagnose me with pure um, as well. And uh, yeah. But also I think it does change and your your your, your tics change and um, where you are as well changes. But I, yeah, I have so much shame. I think even now, and I have to, I don't have to watch myself, but I do find it interesting, an interesting exercise to look at what I naturally am drawn to speak about. And the OCD side of things tends to be something that I don't naturally put at the forefront. And particularly the maternal OCD, and particularly some of the intrusive thoughts, they're so closely linked with, and I had this anyway with the postnatal depression, but they're so closely linked with feeling like a failure as a mother, particularly the intrusive thoughts and some of the things that you think. It's so drenched in shame. And also the skin picking. Um, I have done it for a really long time, but I realised at one point in time I hadn't really... It was about maybe a year or two ago, but so I've been well into well into talking about mental health um, and perhaps the more sanitised sides of mental health, mental illness. And I realised I wasn't talking about this. And it... It, it has just always been, particularly skin picking, like, right, as we're talking, I'm doing it to my foot now, so I'm stopping. Um, and I have to I have to say it out loud to make me stop, and sometimes it doesn't work. But it's been my secret, my hidden, my little coping mechanism, particularly the dermatillomania, that feels very raw and it feels very vulnerable and very shameful to talk about, even now. Yeah, yeah. So it's incredible you're still doing it. And I just think the more people do that, the less shameful it will become. Because I still think, I know we've had this big mental health movement, but I still think there are some mental health conditions that are more normalised than others, and others are still not understood. And that's, I think OCD, there's such a massive spectrum. And I I still think it's not really taken seriously in a lot of cases. People just make jokes about cleaning and, you know, it's, it's, I think I read a stat once about it and I don't know if it's broken down per the type of OCD you have, but certainly some types of OCD are, um, I think, the most debilitating like mm. mental health condition of them all it was either the first or the second most debilitating and that's it's just a really scary stat when you think of how you know how little people take it seriously or even the medical profession sometimes gosh yeah I know I could talk I honestly I could talk about this all day because it is so debilitating and I think that's the difference between people saying I'm, I'm so OCD because I like things neat and tidy now no that's not the same as you feel like your whole world is going to cave in if it's not in a certain order or, or a, tidy, a level of tidiness or cleanliness or whatever your OCD tick might be. Or for me, it's taking over, you know, it begins to take over my mind or my my health or my existence by keep continuing doing this. So people say, oh, I pick my thumbs. But how how compulsive is that? How How much is that taking over your life? It's not you know there's a sort of line and it's like yeah I know what you're trying to say but I don't think it's the same as having OCD and I'm not a I'm not a medical professional but there it, it's it's seen as very flippant isn't it that it's 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 not taken seriously at all no not at all and I'm interested in you know what the process was like for you of speaking up for the first time did you first access help for depression OCD and postnatal depression after you had your little girl yeah so that took me quite a long time to climb down from the idea of perfect the perfection the perfect mother myth and realize even though you know I have struggled with mental illness my entire life and I should have known that lovely word should I should have known that what was happening but I thought motherhood was hard I thought motherhood was something you have to endure and 
I thought that everyone was kind of just doing it a bit better than me and I needed to I needed to carry on and give everything of myself some people go undiagnosed entirely some people it's not until their little people are slightly bigger people that they they get they get the help that they need but she was coming up to a year she was nine or ten months before I found myself in a doctor's surgery completely breaking down not for the first time but the first time in in motherhood and um and and saying I, I get being a mother is hard I do but should it be this hard um and this was after suicidal thoughts um and um steps to take my own life and I still didn't realize I was that ill I still didn't realize that and getting the diagnosis uh diagnoses because I got mm. multiple um uh I still didn't get it I still didn't really realize it and it took me a really long time for it to sink in and the road to recovery again was so so long and I don't necessarily like the word recovery and mental illness but I do think I do think because I don't like to say that people are fixed I think your mental health journey is lifelong Mm. but I think there has been a recovery from postnatal depression and some people there there isn't some people it just carries on it's you're always postnatal after you've given birth that's post birth you know um and I think there is a bit of a myth that you can only have postnatal depression up to a year and yes there are bright line tests that the NHS have to have to put in place to see to diagnose you whether you've got postnatal depression or just depression um but those are just tests that they need to you know for resource allocation it's not because your brain suddenly can't be poorly still and I think that's something that's not really spoken about um and is misunderstood and a lot of people talk to me and say oh I feel like I should be better by now everybody else is better and I would say hand on heart honestly my little girl turned five this year and it wasn't until the beginning of this year I physiologically like right in the cellular level felt like it sounds such a silly thing to say but that I felt I didn't have depression from mm-hmm. it um so it takes a long time it's a long 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 road yeah that's amazing though that's amazing to feel that but I suppose it's about for other women just lowering the expectation of you know mm. okay so I've had this diagnosis but I, I really should be better in the next three months and just being easy and kind on yourself and some people will be and that's brilliant and and, and I think it's really important when we talk about these things to always have hope and always know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and things did change I always say that my my honestly I hate the word journey but I don't have a better one but my journey with postnatal depression and the way I started to feel better was a little bit like you know if you've ever watched the sunrise but there's not an obvious sun it's like you know cloudy day and you've just gradually gradually been aware for that it's got lighter and lighter to the point where suddenly it's day you it was dark maybe 45 minutes ago and now it's light and you don't quite know where that moment was when it was light again but it happened and all you know is that you're now standing in the light when you were in the dark um obviously it wasn't as quick as 45 minutes but if you span that over a number of years like gradually 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 very tiny incrementally little baby steps you start to feel better um so it's not that it was it it yeah it it just and like you say self-kindness just being really really kind on yourself and I wasn't I thought I should again same word um should be better should be able to cope shouldn't still be poorly and all the rest of it and it, it doesn't work like that brains don't work like that no 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 it's not black or white it's not linear is it at all <laughs> no exactly I wonder just to to shed light on what it actually feels like what PND feels like for those who don't understand or haven't been through it can you just take us back if you don't mind and and talk about what it was like when it started after the birth and what it did feel like at its worst yeah gosh that's a really that's a really difficult question because it's very hard to describe but and somebody asked me the other day at what point do I think I had postnatal depression and it's a almost impossible question to answer I think I had undiagnosed prenatal depression because I don't remember any joy in my pregnancy whatsoever um 
at all. Uh, there was there was anticipation. There was a lot of trepidation. Uh, there was a lot of feeling tired and sick, and 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 there was and there was fear about what was coming. Even though this is what I wanted, it was such a weird thing to 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 explain. And and it was and she was very much she was very much wanted, and she was very much. Um, yeah, she was she she was she was what we were doing. But mm. gosh, even with that, it, there I don't remember any joy. And so I think I had prenatal depression. And then, yeah, when on, and also I think one of the factors for me, without going into way too much detail, but I didn't find out I was pregnant until I was eight weeks, no, 10 weeks pregnant. Oh, wow. I know, right? Um, I didn't think that was possible. Um, I, 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 I didn't think that was possible, but it, it, it is. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it will be too much detail to, to go into why. Um, mm-hmm turn all your listeners off but basically I didn't find out till I was 10, 10 weeks and then she came um 37 weeks really really early and so I didn't have many weeks to process what was going on because a normal pregnancy is 40 weeks you know quite early and you know it can go to it can go to a little bit longer than that and no 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 I had a tiny amount of time so I was still in shock so that was a very waffly way of saying when I gave birth I she and she came early and it was a shock and it was very dramatic and so I think I spent the first few weeks in complete and utter shock still mm-hmm. um and and then yep that just morphed into um a relentless tired she wasn't a baby who slept and she was a baby who cried and that doesn't that's not to put the blame on her it wasn't her fault at all in any in any way but that really took a toll on me and I think not I think, I know that my mental health is very much linked to how much sleep I get. And yeah. I now I know when I'm starting to spiral or I'm starting to I'm starting to feel bad, I need to sleep. I need to just top up my sleep. Some people it won't work, that won't work for, but that is one of my that's one of my things that I need. And so you know, it, it she didn't she just didn't sleep. Um and 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 that was really hard. I didn't know what I was doing and she she cried a lot and that fed into that feeling of not knowing what I'm doing and that I was failing and it was just relentless it was a it felt like a relentless joyless slog and then that turned in again very slowly very gradually and there was no bang and suddenly I felt suicidal but it felt this inability to cope this constant and relentless fight that I didn't have any energy for and fog like no people talk about the black dog and the black fog it felt like I was just wading through fog heavy sticky thick fog all day no color no joy just no no happiness at a time when you're supposed to be the happiest you've ever been so people used to say oh my gosh isn't she adorable and don't you just want to kiss her the whole time and I bet you can't ever imagine a time without her and oh it's so the most wonderful time of your life and I used to look at them I remember it so clearly thinking they're insane like what are they talking about this is terrible I didn't say that I smiled and went yeah it's great and 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 just thought that I there was something I mean there was something wrong with me but there was something wrong with me and that I needed to keep up this pretense and therefore I think it, it was that pretending and that societal pressure that this is the most joyful time of our lives kept me locked into this silent shame and I would like to say just to your listeners here and it's a bit of a shocking statistic but I really wish more people knew it because I do think that if more people knew this this statistic around maternal suicide we would treat new mums with and I don't just mean mums who it's their first baby I mean within the first year of life of any of their babies Mm a little bit more care and attention and realize how vulnerable they are. So a mum with an under one-year-old, even if they've had other children, a mum with an under one-year-old is more likely to die by suicide than any other cause of death. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. has been the case for years and years and years. And it's so preventable. 
and it's heartbreaking and it's shocking and it I was almost part of it as well and I think had I depression and obviously I didn't just have depression I had a had a had a nice little cocktail of mental illness around that time but a lot of the illnesses and people who've had you know people who are listening who've had um, other mental illnesses will know that what they do is they isolate you and part of feeling better and recovery is knowing you're not alone and I think not that that knowing that statistic would have been a magic pill in itself but I think it would have been an enormous comfort to know that I wasn't alone I genuinely thought I was the only person struggling with this and I hadn't really heard much about it and I just thought this is what I I martyred myself I thought this is what you have to do to be a good mum basically Mm, yeah and those feelings and that isolation just keeps women quiet about their yeah. experience and then that I mean that statistics really shocking I hadn't I think I saw that on your Instagram at some point and I, I'd never heard that before and I certainly don't think the general population know that <laughs> no I agree and I think if they did we'd all just be that little bit kinder and check in and people often say to me what can I do and obviously there's tons of practical stuff you can do I mean less so at the moment but if you go to my feed I've I've, I've tried to do some COVID some COVID practical advice that you can you can give you can um not give you can help uh new mums at the moment Mm -hmm. but it's 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 really about being there and asking and asking again and I've got a friend who's going through it right now with her second and I was like a socially distanced walk and I will just walk with you and because we we down here we can now um meet one other person well actually I think it's slightly expanded um but it's it's and just sending her a message and I just sent her a message this morning and said I know you're having a really bad time just checking in and and she just said thanks and also send and saying you don't know what to do it's a bit like when somebody dies and the silence is is not helpful saying I don't know what, what to say I said to her the other day I was like everything even though this is what I do day in day out right I mm. said to her you know I want to say sounds like a cliche you know like you've got this and you're strong and like Ugh. but you really do have this and you know you're 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 going to get through this you know that you will but I'm here yeah and and it's just having knowing you're not alone that isolation is so hard yeah and I can imagine when you do feel like that you do feel like it's going to last forever and it's not going to lift because it feels so dark at the time but it's almost just trying to have faith in yourself that you won't always feel that way as well yeah and I think particularly when you're a first-time mum everyone says oh you know it's all a phase and it goes so quickly enjoy it I was like I want it to bloody go quickly this is not enjoyable but also you don't believe that it's a phase and I think the longer your parenting journey I'm only five years in so there'll be people listening to this who have had multiple children and have way further into their parenting journey but I think what does ring true is that you it become you what you know is that it really is a phase and then they test you in some other unknown way and it all moves again and all the goalposts move and then you have that challenge to deal with but for me personally not having to have because they do they are children are challenging but not having my mind challenging me at the same time as the you know the needs of my child being challenging the combination of the two mixed in with what the society pressures mixed in with this idea from me and externally internally and externally externally of what a good mother should look like or a perfect mother um is a bit Mm -hmm. of a combination I think Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely can you share a little bit about which therapies have really helped you since having postnatal depression and I know that everyone's different so what might have worked for you might not work for someone else but what what kind of advice would you give someone who is going through it now yeah it's hard because like you say everybody will react differently I did go on medication I'm no longer on medication but I was on medication for a number of years and it's something that I had previously in my mental health um again that stupid word journey had resisted but at this point in time I didn't um so there's no shame in that I'd say first off if you need to take medication please do um then also therapy the the NHS 
here in England, I'm not sure what it's like in Scotland, but tend to push people towards uh, CBT, which is generally a six week CBT course. I did that and it didn't help me. It may have, I know it works wonders for some people. For me, um, well, first and foremost, I'm honestly, I could talk about this all day. I didn't get on with my therapist and I think that is the most important factor for whether therapy will work or not which is very difficult when you're accessing it through the NHS you can request another therapist but often that means then waiting again and I do think the waiting um the waiting lists are just dangerously long and I wish I could wave a magic wand and I wish I had the answers and I wish that no one had to wait at time of need at, at the time of need um but that's a whole nother soapbox moment for me. But <laughs> I think, uh, and the CBT for me at that time when I was sleep deprived, when I, I was barely holding it together, it's very practical and it's very, um, I had homework and I didn't have time. I felt like I didn't have time. I probably did, but I resisted it and resented it. And I don't think that's the right way that for a good therapeutic relationship to exist under so it will work for some people do give it a go and there's lots of resources um that are sort of based in cbt that people can access for like really low cost or free um which is which is useful to know um i'll try and send some over that maybe you can link in in some show in the show notes um and for me for me what worked is a bit of time obviously with all things uh the medication obviously first off but I realized after a while that the medication was essentially a great big sticking plaster over the underlying issue. And I needed to talk. I needed talk therapy. And I knew it wasn't going to be a quick fix. It was slow. So I ended up, um, I had uh, uh, an insurance, um, health insurance policy through the, the the company that I worked for at the time. I think I got six or might have been eight sessions. I think it was six sessions that I had with um, uh, a private therapist. And I went for that and I really trusted her. I really liked her. I really bonded with her. She had a completely different style, had therapy, I mean, for about 18 years on and off with different different therapies and different things. But she was very, very different. Her approach, for anyone who's interested in this, she was humanistic person-centered um it felt like a really lovely conversation between two friends where I didn't have to listen to any of her stuff she was just gentle supportive not always non-challenging sometimes she did but she would kind of not physically hold my hand but metaphorically hold my hand through it and she was really what I needed at that time and slowly slowly so I ended up finishing those that out those rounds of sessions and decided to make the investment to carry on paying for it myself and that was a big decision in and of itself and something I can speak more about um perhaps another time but it it was the best decision that I made and I ended up seeing her for about three years and it was the best thing completely life-changing completely life-saving she I think the biggest thing really was rediscovering who I was not mm -hmm. just as a mother because you lose yourself a bit everyone talks about oh you lose your identity when you're a mum but I think it went further than that I am a people pleaser I'm a perfectionist I need external validation and it was looking at all those things and if you take away my successes if you take away my you know I had a glittering career in a great big law firm as a lawyer if you take out all those things that people are impressed by what's underneath there and I, I guess for me, what I realized through therapy is that I was scared that there was nothing there and I was worthless. And the, that's the fear mm. and, and, and dismantling some of the core beliefs that I was told as a child. Some of the things that happened in my childhood, some of the things that um, were traumatic and that I hadn't dealt with. And we did a lot of work, a lot of work to sort of rebuild myself and find who that person was and that and, and then the next step like that person and then the next step love that person so it's, it's a very 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 slow but um a very worthwhile process that I found myself in then 
Yeah. Oh, thanks for sharing all of that. I think um, it's honestly, it's, I, I think for most people, and I know you do have to be compatible with a therapist, but for most people, like investing in therapy is something you will never regret or look back on. And mm-hmm. it's just such a shame that there isn't a therapist available for everyone on the NHS because so many people can't afford it. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's just so valuable. I can completely identify with that. I think it's just worthwhile if you're wondering about doing it. And if you can't afford it, I would say to anyone, do it. Yeah, and I would just say at this point as well, there are a number of charities who offer either completely free or very low cost um, therapy. So it's always worth um, exploring that. And I think it's less it's less known. It's less known. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, definitely. I'll see if I can find some and link to those as well. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the identity piece as well, because, yeah, I read something else you'd written about that. And I think it's so interesting and something that's not talked about enough is that, you know, so many new mothers especially do lose parts of themselves. And it's really hard to then rediscover those parts. And it sounds like you're on the road to doing that. So that's amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, trying desperately. Well, no, desperately trying to is the wrong way. The wrong way to say. It. No, I am. I'm trying to, and it's a an evolving picture. I'd say I'm not there yet. Yeah, yeah, it's a gradual process. And is there any way that you've worked on your perfectionism? Because I know that is that's something so many people struggle with, and it's not easy at all. And it can also help you achieve things in life. But there's it's a horrible double-edged sword. Is there yeah. are there any ways you can talk about that you've tried to kind of manage that? That's a really good question. I think, yeah, first off, perfectionism is motivating, but also <laughs> crippling, depending mm-hmm. on how on how far you take it. And I used to just take it way, way too far. Um, it's something I'm still working on. I think it's a lot of therapy has helped a lot of perspective of who am I doing this for why am I doing it am I doing this because um it looks good I'm impressing somebody or is it something that I actually want to do myself and I think I will always have that perfectionist perfectionist itch that I want to scratch of if I'm doing something I want to do it to the best of my ability but often I would be doing something not because I would want to do it but because someone else was asking me to do it and therefore I was ending up burning out from trying to please not only myself but everyone around me and that was just so futile it just it was absolutely exhausting process and relentless process so now and even then so with perfectionism I say in motherhood so let's just take that as a thing there is no perfectionism in motherhood like you have to accept that you're going to make mistakes you have to accept I have to accept that being a is good enough and even as I say this there's I still feel that little voice inside going yeah but you're going to go and give it a good old try, try Joe, aren't you and I have to fight against it. I have to rally against it. I have to think to myself, no, because a perfect if there is a perfect mum, it's not going to produce a perfect child. And it's it's showing her, like, for example, it's letting, you know, letting myself be vulnerable in, in front of her, letting myself make mistakes in front of her because I don't want her to feel like this. And I think mm-hmm. having a girl exacerbates that and makes me more motivated to want to not change that part of me because I don't think I am I I am a type a personality and this is this is this is just part of me but it's learning to like I said uh, yeah to start with is learning to know when it's something that I want to do as opposed to something that somebody else wants me to do and I have no interest in it other than I want to please people um and then knowing when to kind of stop knowing when it's enough the the job is done it not going over so say I'm writing an article or something it's it's good enough it's absolutely fine it's it's perfect maybe it's not perfect it's absolutely fine mm-hmm. if I spend another six hours on it and I change three more words that then make it perfect is that worth it no probably not because then I've stayed up into the night and I've not had the sleep that I need and it's learning and I still am learning sorry no magic answers I'm still learning to kind of catch myself in those moments and say Mm -hmm. no what's the cost benefit analysis here stop and just send it 
Yeah, totally, because it's diminishing returns if you're then losing sleep and that's so affecting your mental health. Exactly. It's, it's easier said than done, but um, I'm still working on it, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that's the perfect answer, but it's going to do. <laughs> it doesn't need to be perfect. I find that really useful to listen to because I'm a recovering perfectionist as well. And it's really interesting to hear someone else articulate how they're working on it. Because, yeah, I, I just think it is sometimes, like you said before, it's good to voice things out loud. And then once you say that, you realise oh, it's going to be e- more easily identifiable next time you are struggling with a certain issue or wanting something to be perfect. Exactly. And bringing awareness to your behaviour, I think with everything, anything you want to change, I think I often jump straight to, I want to fix this part of myself, I want to change this part of myself. And the first step, and normally the only step, but sometimes it's slower than that, is just bringing awareness to that behaviour, clocking that you're doing it, and sitting and stopping and putting that pause, putting that breath, putting that, that wedge of time an ability to potentially swap it or change it but just first off just acknowledging that you're doing this I think that's my that's my number one tip for 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 pretty much any change that you want to make is trying to bring awareness to it awareness yeah absolutely yeah totally beat yourself up about it as well don't just awareness yeah curiosity that's what you want of like oh look you're doing that again joe Mm, interesting yeah Yeah, just (laughs) noting it down not not beating yourself up that's important isn't it yeah so joe would you be up for moving on to a quick fire round yeah yeah let's do it cool so the first question is if you could travel back to one moment in your life which would it be okay this set is gonna sound a little bit it's not morbid i would go back to the last day that i spent with my dad which was the last day he had before he died and i would go back and i wouldn't I would go back with the same knowledge that I had that day, not knowing that it was his last day on earth. And I would just relive it so that it, when I came back to here, sorry, I'm making lots of rules around this. So when I came back to now, it was like more of a fresh memory. It was more of a a vivid memory for me to have. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I want to go back and know, you know, I want to just go back and live it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What do you want to get better at this year? Not perfect, but better. (laughs) I would like to yeah I'd like to give myself space for more reading I often beat myself up that I don't read enough but I don't actually allow myself the time to do it so just try and create a bit better at creating the time which is there for for reading because I'm I I I adore it Mm-hmm. yeah and it's so fulfilling getting through books but I'm similar to you I've got a massive stack of books next to my bed I never get through and I don't know if you do this already but I've just recently started listening to audiobooks and it's really yeah. helping me get through more yes yeah I literally just finished um Untamed by Glennon Doyle on on audiobook and it really helps me but there's still something I think I'm just a bit of a Luddite as well I mean I'm doing it but there's just something about wanting a physical book as well like, I think I have to buy the audio and the book so I have them I have them both maybe I don't know yeah there is something special about reading a yeah old-fashioned book I know I love Glenn and Doyle Shit, I cannot wait that's on my short list on audible I cannot wait to get to that one was it good um it was good I think she covered quite a lot and potentially too much in the book but I think potentially what she's doing because this is her third memoir right so I think maybe each of each chapter could almost be a book in itself and I wonder if that's what she's going to do and springboard into um because I think each chapter it's amazing and there's like revelation after revelation and it's incredible but almost not I wish that she'd done I liked the book I really liked it she's got an amazing style um but it, I, I felt that I was like, oh, suddenly we're on another thing and she's having a revelation about. So I think potentially the next book and the next book and the next book might be chunked down into those specific areas. Like she talks about race, she talks about um, sexuality, she talks about, you know, and each chapter it's like really rich and I want her to delve in more. So I felt mm-hmm. like she's scratching the surface and maybe giving us a warm up to what's coming next potentially. So Interesting. We'll need mm-hmm. to watch that space. Yes. Where or how do you waste most time at the moment? Social media. (laughs) I'm with you on that. (laughs) That's a quick one. That's an easy one. (laughs) What would you feel most drawn to writing a book about? 
Oh, therapy. Easy, easy, easy. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I hope you can one day. Yeah, fingers crossed. What do you currently find most frustrating about our world or society? Oh, such a good question. I think, God, there's so much, but I think in light of what we've just talked about, because there's so much I could say about the world at the moment, and particularly um, there's a lot of, I don't know when this is going to be released, but there's a lot of things in the in the current um, climate that is really important to talk about. But I think, given where we've had this conversation, and there's a lot I feel really passionate about, so trying to do one is hard, but I just really like to live in a world where the barriers to entry for people getting mental health support were far lower. Yeah, totally. And um, that, that, I mean, like your own stigma, the wider stigma, mental health services, support, you know, like the whole, the whole shebang. Um, I just, I, I wish that that was, I wish we, it was on the same level in every sense of the word as physical health, mental health. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I, and I just wish it was more accessible for everyone because I think the state of our nation's health and the world's health, if it was available in every country, would be completely different yeah. in the and long term. Health, I mean, physical and mental health, there should be no distinction and it should be just, it should be prioritised and as much, as much, one as much as the other. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today, Joe. It's been a brilliant having an insight into your world, your life. And thank you again for talking about these issues because it's, it's so important. It's been great getting to know you. No, my absolute, absolute pleasure. You too. To keep us far away from our sweat.